So welcome. We're going to continue uh, on our journey through the book of 1 Thessalonians in the Bible. Uh, we are in the eighth week of the sermon series, and we're going to be looking at the first half of the fourth chapter of this book. The central theme of this passage is on sexuality. Generally, I would give a little bit of an introduction to the sermon, to the, to the passage that we're looking at so that I can get people interested in the topic before I actually read uh, the passage from the Bible. Uh, but when the central theme of the Bible passage is sexuality, why waste time with an, with an introduction when everybody is, is obviously already interested? And so let's go straight and, and read the passage. I'm going to request Sudhir uh, to read the passage for us. It's going to come up. Uh, on screen uh, for us in, in just one second. And then Sudhir is going to read uh, this portion for us. There is so you can hear me? I hope you can hear me. Yeah. I'll be reading from First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 to 9. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans, who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. This is God's word. Amen. Um, thank you so much, uh, Sudhir. Allow me to pray before we... Um, dive into the sermon. Father, we thank you for the gift of sexuality. Sexuality between male and female within the beautiful covenant of marriage reminds us of the glory with which God created us. And uh, we uh, come before you, Lord, repenting for the way uh, all of us and the culture around us has corrupted the beauty of biblical sexuality. And I pray, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, that you would draw us once again to rediscover um, sexuality as you created it in all its glory and in all its beauty. Thank you, Lord. We worship you. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, I'd like to draw two things for us from this passage. First, the need for absolute morals in sexuality. And second, how to be sanctified in our sexuality the need for absolute morals in our sexuality and how to be sanctified in our sexuality. Even though this is a really small passage of scripture that we read, I don't think in the next 30 minutes I'm going to be able to do full justice to all of that scripture. 
Uh, I'm going to try my best, but I don't think I'm going to be able to cover it all. So if you have questions, we're going to have uh, a time for a question and answer session right at the end. And uh, we'd love to take some questions at the end. Uh, so let's, let's first look at uh, these two things. Let's start with the first thing, the need for absolute morals in sexuality. We live in a world where uh, moral standards, standards of sexuality are becoming increasingly becoming more and more permissive. Uh, even uh, 10, 15 years ago, in India at least, living together um, was considered morally wrong. Now it's all about consenting adults, uh, having a right to live as they please. I guess I might actually be sounding very old and outdated uh, when I'm talking about things like living relationships today, because today, uh, I mean, you're not even bothering to living together, because these days it's all about friends with benefits and uh, Netflix and sharing. Not too long ago, a homosexuality was considered morally wrong. Uh, today, homosexuality is fashionable. It is fiercely celebrated. And uh, it is considered morally wrong to say that homosexuality is morally wrong. And uh, today's culture absolutely believes and asserts that its standard of sex sexual ethics is correct and the best. So, you know, I'm sure we all have friends who kind of have a very postmodern and contemporary and, and progressive within view of, within course view of sexuality and, and they all believe that their standard is, is the right standard. But there's a big problem here. And let me show you what the problem is. I, I want to invite you to talk to any of your friends uh, who has a very modern and, and, and a progressive and, and permissive view of sexuality and, and talk to them and ask them this very simple question. Is it okay for a man to have a wife so she can bear his children and manage his household and then visit prostitutes to have his sexual urges serviced and then have a few mistresses with whom he can have a real uh, emotional companionship and intellectual conversations? Do you think it's okay? Is that, is that, is that all right? If you ask the question, what do you think the answer will be? The answer is, of course, no, no, absolutely, this is just not done. Uh, you can't treat women like that. Women are not objects. They need to be treated with respect. This is absolutely wrong. And of course, uh, all of us here um, would believe that such behavior by men is just not acceptable. It is, it is morally wrong. And, and everyone we know in our culture, uh, in our time, here in Mumbai, wherever which city you're from in, uh, and they would all believe that this is wrong. Men cannot live like that. But the Thessalonians and the Corinthians and the Ephesians believed that this was absolutely the right way to live. You see, in their culture, in their time, this was a socially acceptable way for men to live. This is how men and women lived. This was the prevalent sexual standard of morality of the ancient Greco-Roman, Greco-Roman culture. And this was the most popular and this was the most uh, socially accepted standard of sexual morality. And let me quote 
Greek orator Demosthenes as he describes what was considered as absolutely normal and uh, accepted sexual behavior for men in the Greco-Roman culture. We have mistresses for pleasure, concubines to care for our daily body's needs, and wives to bear us legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of our household. What, what a grand statement this guy is making. Uh, but it is true. It is a fair statement, a fair reflection of his time and of his culture. So if you take someone today with the most open and broad-minded view of sexuality and put him in the Greco-Roman culture, he or she is going to be repulsed by it. Similarly, if you take a man from the ancient Greco-Roman culture and put him in our culture, he's going to call our so-called progressive postmodern sexual ethics regressive. He is going to be furious that you've taken away a man's legal, moral, and cultural right to have a wife or children, to go to prostitutes, to have a sexual urges fulfilled, and, and to have a mistress for, for deep companionship. Greco-Roman culture is going to say that our postmodern view of sexuality is wrong. Our culture's postmodern view of sexuality is wrong. And the so-called progressive and broad-minded men and women of our times are going to say that their sexual culture is totally wrong. Do you see the problem here? One culture's relative view of sexuality is never going to be right for another culture. One time period's relative view of sexuality is never going to be right for another time period in human history. And which is why we need an absolute standard for correct sexuality, which holds true in every culture and in every time period. And I guess we'll all agree that, that this universal standard for what's what's considered correct sexual ethics cannot come from any of us. It cannot come from any specific culture or it cannot come from any specific time period because each culture and each time period is relative. It has to come from the outside. And not only should this universal and correct standard of sexuality come from someone from outside, it has to come from someone who is above all cultures. It has to come from someone who is even above time itself. It has to come from someone who is absolutely perfect and just in every way. And so, God is the only one who can prescribe the correct standard of sexual morality that human beings should live by. Which is why we believe that the Bible is the only perfect universal standard for sexual morality. None of our personal preferences and, and views can be right. So that's really the first thing I wanted to draw for us from this passage, the need for absolute morals in sexuality. I'd also like to show something interesting, uh, one more thing that's interesting in the passage. Paul, the writer of this letter to Thessalonians, and we've been looking at it uh, for the, over the past few weeks, Paul who wrote this letter to the church in Thessalonica, 
Paul is using God's absolute morality on sexuality to challenge the Greco-Roman culture's standard of morality. Look at verse 3. It says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. What does the word sanctified here mean? As we've been seeing, the church at Thessalonica was full of people who had chosen Christianity as their faith. They weren't born with their faith. They'd chosen Christianity as their faith. It was a church that was full of first-generation believers. And all of these men and women who, who came to faith in Jesus, who became part of the Thessalonian church, would have all grown up in a culture where it was absolutely okay and normal for men to have multiple sexual partners simultaneously just as we live in a culture that believes that it is totally okay to Netflix and chill. When Paul says, it is God's will for you to be sanctified, the word sanctified here means to be set apart. When Paul says he's be sanctified, he's telling that the, telling the Thessalonian church that they are to leave behind the sexual morality of their culture and their time, and they need to embrace the absolute sexual morality of God. In our times, this means that we need to reject the Netflix and show culture and embrace God's standard of sexual morality. There's more. We're not only called to reject the relative sexual morality of our culture, but we're also called to lovingly and winsomely challenge it. What does it mean to be the salt and the light of the world in the area of sexuality? The world needs us followers of Jesus to be salt and light in every area, perhaps even more so in the area of sexual ethics. And so we must not be apologetic or, or ashamed of, of God's absolute uh, standard of sexual morality given to us through the Bible. At the same time, we must also not be shrill and, and, and self-righteous and, 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 and judgmental and saying, you know, you are wrong and we are right and we know better. No. We must be humble and respectful and winsome in, in challenging uh, our culture's relative sexual ethics with God's absolute moral standard of sexual morality. So that's really the first thing that I wanted to share. The need for an absolute uh, standard of sexual morality. The second thing that I wanted to look at is how are we to be sanctified? What does the process of being sanctified in our sexual morality, in our own sexuality, what, the, what does the process of being sanctified in our sexuality actually look like? And that answer to is right here in the passage. Look at verses one. Verse one. I'm going to read it out for us from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you're living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. That's verse 1. So, 
how were the Thessalonians living that Paul is asking them to live like that more and more? The answer lies in the first chapter of the book. If you're part of the series earlier, you quickly reconnect with what I'm going to share. Let me read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. Faith, love, hope. And then uh, verses 9 and 10 in the first chapter, they tell of how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait. Turning, serving, waiting. We saw that in the early weeks of, of, of the passage, of, of, of the sermon series a few weeks ago. So you remember how the Thessalonians turned in faith, served in love, and waited in hope. We call this the gospel triad, if you remember from the first three sermons in the series. Paul is now playing this gospel triad of faith, hope, and love. Again, he's overlaying this gospel triad of faith, hope, and love in the theme of sexuality. Let me just show that to us from verses 3 to 6. Verse 3, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. That is turning. Turning, faith involves turning. Faith is not only believing in Jesus, faith is rejecting something to believe in Jesus. So turning. The second one is verse 4, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy, that is holy and, and honorable. That is waiting. Waiting to, to grow into the fullness of sexual, sexuality as God intended. And then verse 6, so that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. And that's serving. I want to just help us see this visually, what Paul is talking about, what we've been talking about in the initial few weeks of the series, this, this gospel triad. Hang on, just one second. The screen's going to come up. Paul's talking about a gospel triad of faith, love, and hope. And Paul's saying faith involves turning. Love involves serving and hope involves waiting. And here Paul overlays this in the area of sexual morality by saying faith or turning is to be sanctified, which is to depart from the culture's view of sexuality and sexuality. And then serving, uh, Paul, Paul says in this context, Love or serving is do not take advantage of a brother or sister. And hope or waiting, Paul is talking, is about self-control. And all of this is happening by the power of the gospel applied in our hearts by God's Holy Spirit. It is not happening in our strength, but the gospel and God's Holy Spirit is empowering us to live. And Paul is applying this in the area of sexuality. What I'd like to do uh, in the remaining time in the sermon is to actually look at this gospel triad and see 
how does this actually play out? What does turning really mean? What does serving really mean? What does waiting really mean in the area of sexuality? And so let's start with the first thing, which is faith, which involves turning, which Paul is talking about as being sanctified. In the context of sexuality, turning involves a turning away from the fake attraction and the fake pleasure of uncommitted or casual sex and turning into the godly beauty and real joy and pleasure of sex within the covenant of marriage. Men and women desire intimacy in different ways. For men, intimacy is often driven by beholding the naked body of a woman. For women, sexual intimacy is often triggered first, not so much perhaps by bodies coming together, but by hearts and souls coming together. That happened first before moving on to the rest. Such desire is not wrongful. It was God who breathed sexual desire into us when he created us. It was he who created the, the sexual organs. It was he who created the act of sex. It was he who thought about, about it in the, in, the, in the first place. So the Bible definitely does not discourage sex. On the other hand, the Bible is actually calling us to maximize our sexual intimacy as a gift from God, as a beautiful, precious gift from God in the, within the lifelong covenant of marriage. The Bible warns us that casual sex or even casual romantic flings do not bring real intimacy. On the contrary, the Bible says that casual flings lead us to lose our capacity for real intimacy. So biblical sanctification is not abstinence. Biblical sanctification is not developing a negative view of sex and saying sex is bad, sex is wrong, not at all. Biblical uh, sanctification is enjoying godly sexuality, which is the beauty of male and female becoming one flesh through and within the covenant of marriage. I guess those of us who are followers of Jesus, we all believe in this morally. And I think we're all also living by it, all of us. But even though we may live by it, quite often, some of our hearts, maybe many of our hearts, may be inclined to fantasize about the fake thrill of easy sex outside of marriage. Maybe there's a small secret part of our hearts that covets sex outside marriage. We may never indulge in this, but perhaps in that small secret part of our heart, this desire is playing out over and over and over again. Turning in faith is not just a turning of behavior, it is also a deep turning of the heart. Real faith, real sanctification, real turning is when our hearts learn to celebrate the beauty of godly sexuality in, in such a way that other temptations lose 
their hold over us. That's the first thing I want to talk about, turning. The second thing I want to draw from this is the second way we grow in being sanctified in our sexuality is by love or serving, or as Paul refers to in this passage, not taking advantage of a brother or a sister. I want to be really practical here. Why is sex between two consenting adults wrong outside of marriage? And uh, there's another variation of this objection, and I hear that a lot. How can you say that it is wrong for a couple who really, 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 really love each other? How can you say for a couple like this, it's wrong for them to have sex outside of marriage? Why does the Bible take that stance? And here's the answer. Imagine, imagine you're running an orphanage and you're caring for a bunch of children who have been given up for adoption. And uh, as you're running, doing a good job of managing this orphanage and caring and loving for these children, there's this wonderful, kind, and well-educated couple who come to you. Uh, they come to you and they select a child from the orphanage. And you can clearly see that they absolutely love this child. And uh, they tell you that they will, uh, they absolutely come at you, that they're going to love this child the rest of her life. They're going to care for this child. They're going to protect this child. They're going to meet all the children, all, all the child's needs. They're going to be good parents to this child. And, and as, they, as they make these commitments, you can tell, you can see, and you can tell they need it. You can see that they really love this child. And, and they're ready to go ahead and take the child to their home. But, but they do not want to go through the legal process and the covenant of adoption. They're willing to do everything to love and care for the child except legally adopt the child. Would you give this child away to this couple? I don't think so. Why not? If they, if they really, really, really love this child, why are they unwilling to get into the commitment of legal adoption? You see, real love immediately and inevitably, inevitably but lifelong, unconditional commitment. Their willingness in this hypothetical example to legally adopt the child makes their self-proclaimed love for this child redundant because they're not willing to go through with, with the legal commitment of adoption. And so it is with marriage. You see, without the covenantal commitment of marriage, there is no commitment. And where there is no commitment, there is no real love. That is why sex before marriage, even for couples who claim to deeply, deeply be in love with one another, is wrong. And that is why sex outside of marriage is actually taking advantage of the vulnerability of another person. This is not loving. This is not biblical loving. This is not serving. This is stealing taking advantage of another person's vulnerability for the sexual gratification. Real love is a man declaring that his whole being is absolutely committed to the whole being of one woman for the rest of their lives. And this commitment, this commitment of one whole being to another whole being 
is impossible without marriage. That's, that's why the covenant of marriage is absolutely important in, the, in, in God's plan for human sexuality. And that brings us to the third thing, third way in which Paul is talking about how to be sanctified. It's about hope, which translates to waiting, and in this context, self-control. In one sense, those of us who are single are waiting for marriage to enjoy God's gift for romantic intimacy and sexual intimacy. That's true. But does our real waiting get over just because we get married and can start having sex? Thus, the need for intimacy is a completely fulfilled to this. Is our deepest longing for love and intimacy going to be fully satisfied, fully met, fully fulfilled, even if we have great sex in a perfect fairy tale and romance-filled marriage? Imagine, imagine someone has a perfect marriage, there's great sex in the marriage, there's so much romantic intimacy, there are date nights every single day, there are no fights, even then, is the deepest longing of our souls for an intimacy, for being loved, is that going to be fully met? In other words, are we going to be eternally happy even if we are perfectly loved by our respective spouses? Is this going to be enough? The truth is, and we all know this deep in our hearts, the love of another equal, as good as it is, is eternally not good enough. Don't we all long for the love and the attention of someone greater than ourselves? Don't we all long for the love and affection of someone infinitely greater than ourselves? And so, nothing less than the full, complete, and eternal love of God himself is going to leave us deeply and eternally satisfied. Which is why the Bible presents Jesus Christ not just as our Savior, but also as our bridegroom. Jesus is our bridegroom Messiah. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is our lover Savior, bridegroom, Messiah. And the earthly marriage is not the end of our waiting. Earthly marriage is a mere signpost. Earthly sex within marriage is a mere signpost that is pointing to the greater marriage, to the greater union between all of us who believe in Christ Jesus and Jesus, our lover, Savior, our bridegroom, Messiah. I'd like to close with one thought from verse 3 in the passage that we read. I'll read that verse out for us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. It is God's will that we should be sanctified. God is calling us to be sanctified. God is calling us to turn in faith, to serve in love and to wait in hope in the area of sexuality. Two questions. 
First, have we been faithful in doing this, the area of our sexuality? Second, in the future, are you and I, in the future, are we going to be faithful, completely faithful in the area of our sexuality, or are we going to fail? I think we all know the answer. We are all going to slip, slip up, and fail, some a little bit, some a lot, but we're all going to fail in the journey of God sanctifying us, the area of sexuality. In our thought life, if not in our physical actions, very likely, very likely that we are all going to fail a little bit or more. So what hope do we have? What's our hope? And the answer on how to be sanctified lies in John chapter 7, 17, verse 9. Let me read that. John chapter 17, verse 9, where Jesus says, For them, that is us, I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. Jesus is saying for us, he is sanctifying himself that we too may be truly sanctified. Jesus knew that almost all of us would fail in one way or another to set ourselves apart from the sexual morality of our culture. Knowing we're going to fail him, which is why he set himself apart as the atoning sacrifice for our sins, for our failures to live according to God's absolute moral standard of sexuality. Jesus set himself apart to live a perfect and sinless life and to die on the cross taking upon his body, taking upon himself all of your sins and mine and giving each of us all of his righteousness. He did all this not just to forgive us our sins, but also to give us the power to overcome sin just as he overcame sin. So the journey of our sanctification begins with and is completed in the journey of the sanctification of Christ Jesus. In himself, not, not that he overcame sin, not, not in that sense, not that he was sinful and overcame sin, not at all in that sense, but in the sense that he set himself apart to be a sacrifice for us. The power for our sanctification comes absolutely, wholly, totally from Christ Jesus. Every time we fail, in the area of sexuality, which is why every time we fail in the area of sexuality, we can come running back to Jesus, not just for forgiveness, but also for the power to overcome temptation the next time around. The more we see Christ, the more we see Christ in all his agony, dying on the cross for our sins, the less we will treat grace as a license to give into sexual sin. And the more we will receive grace as the power to overcome and rise above such sin. Let me, let me repeat that and I'll close with that. The 
the more we see Christ in all his agony, dying on the cross for our sins and rising again from the dead, the more we see this, the less we will treat grace as a license to give into sexual sin, and the more we will receive grace as the power to overcome and rise above sexual sin. Let's pray. Father, we, as much as uh, we are aware and uh, we are being convicted of our own failures, our shortcomings, our weaknesses in the area of sexuality, Lord, in the same breath, we want to consider the beauty of sexuality at, at the moment of creation. The way you created a pure, perfect, reflecting your glory, reflecting your holiness even. And uh, as we see the world around us and as we see the culture around us and sadly as we see our own hearts too, we know how far we've strayed, Lord. We've strayed long and far along with our culture from God's absolute standard of sexuality. Lord, as we wait for Christ Jesus to come again, help us, every one of us, to be sanctified. I know this can never happen in our own strength, but we know we have Christ Jesus, his strength, his power, his Holy Spirit to help us in our lifelong journey of sanctification. Thank you, Lord. We worship you. We give you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.